0: Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world class professionals. Simon Webster, thank you very much for coming on my podcast. It was a pleasure meeting you and speaking with you a bit. And could you please introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Simon Webster, based in the UK, you can probably tell by the voice. Did a search fund a long time ago, was only the fifth person to do one in the world, and the first outside of the US. I was searched for three years, so it's quite a long search. In fact, let me go back a bit further. I took me six months to raise the money, three years to do the search, and then I was with the company for 10 years, and then sold the business and stayed for another two, the CEO, before moving on. Since moving on, I've been trying to spread the word about search funds. And that's going around the business schools, trying to mentor people, investing as well. And I now teach formally at London Business School, Judge Business School, and I'm an entrepreneur in residence at INSEAD.
0: Okay, thank you very much for that that introduction. Very impressive background, and you look sprightly. So please don't take this the wrong way, but would you mind telling us about how long ago that that you did your research?
1: If I do look sprightly, it's because there's lots of Vaseline on the lens or something. Yeah, sure, not at all. I did my MBA between 89 and 91. And it was at business school where I learned about search funds from a guy called Rob Johnson, who had just started teaching. He was an entrepreneur um, from the US, had come to London and was having his first spray into teaching. And he said to me, You know, we got on well in the lecture class, and, and he said, Have you ever considered buying a business? And I thought, well, how on earth would I do that? You know, all the PE guys come in and say you've got to have experience of running a company, money behind you, and some industry experience. And yeah, I wasn't sure what industry I was going to go into. Um, he gave me a, a short case study of the very first two guys who did a search fund, Kirk Readinger and Jamie Turner. And, and I read it and I thought, wow, this is really exciting. And after doing a bit more investigation, tracking some people down who had done it, decided to to give it a go. And I thought, well, let's first of all see if I can raise some money because who knows if people this side of the Atlantic would actually be willing to back such a venture. Then she found a few people that said yes. And then I thought, well, if I found two or three, I only need another seven or eight. And I'm, I got my fund. And then I'll get from there really, David.
0: What does that conversation look like? Because I understand it's still a little bit of a sell once you go outside the search fund ecosystem. But you're, you said the fifth person in the world to do this. How do you start that conversation and what does it look like?
1: Well, funny enough, it, even for me, there were one or two people who had invested in search funds before. One was Bill Egan, who's a name that will be some people will recognise. Another was actually Bill Rob Johnson, who invested in the very first search fund. I think that I would describe it as two types of conversations. The first for people who understand search funds; uh, they're very interested in who you are and what makes you think you can run a business, in essence. Whereas the second group who are new to search funds, it's much more about what a search fund is and what are the attractions of the model and why you think the model will work, which leaves far less time to talk about yourself and your background. And I think, obviously, I had no choice and had to go for majority, uh, probably 10, I think, out of my investors, out of 12, were new to search funds. Looking back, I think it was a great test of the model or test of the individual, really. Because it takes a lot to sell it to someone who hasn't heard of the model, but is a really good grounding. Because let's face it, if you're going to be a CEO, you've got to be able to present yourself to sell, and you know anyone can persuade one person, but uh, can you persuade another eleven or twelve people to invest? So you let's know, see the, the sort of process and the test.
0: Okay. And what did the initial search look like when you're looking for companies? Were you industry-focused, region-agnostic?
1: Well, I say region-agnostic. UK was the region. I started off with some favoured industries and tried to go down those. I think perhaps the difference between the UK and the US is our industries are much smaller. And so you hit the cul-de-sac a bit more quickly and have to backtrack and go down another industry. I I still favour an industry approach because you spend an awful lot of time doing due diligence on an industry and mm. getting to know some something about it and be able to talk intelligently to vendors about their company. It's much better if you've got a grounding. So inevitably, in a relatively small market, you end up with a, a dual track. One would be opportunistic and brokers or friends, you know, whatever you're able to network. Any other would be the industry-focused approach.
0: Now, this is, I imagine, before the internet as we know it. And I mean, I imagine you go to the library, you speak to people. I was just curious, how would you become knowledgeable about an industry so that you felt confident enough to talk to investors?
1: Okay. So if it's about the industry and approaching vendors, it's important to do your research first, but also you know, don't try and be a smart ass because you, you're definitely not going to know as much as, as the person on the other side of the desk. Um, in the UK, there were, and I think still are, some called keynote reports, industry reports, basically. They're available in, in most good libraries. So you, know, you track them down, you read them. Uh, frankly, when you're inside the industry, you, of course, know a lot more than is in that report. Right. It's a good starting point. Or, you know, do some research from newspaper. In my day, it was probably more microfiche than anything else. But you know, just to try and get behind the industry. Trade shows were very important as well. And telling people that you're looking in the whatever the industry is and... Do they know of any contacts? Mm. Because yeah, it's unlikely they're going to know of someone who's got a business for sale. But yeah. if you find an industry contact, you are learning about the industry. You're starting to spread your network out. And from an industry contact, you ask them who else would be good to talk to. Mm. And you get two or three names if you can, and you go and talk to those. And you say hi, Mike. David Lovejoy suggested that I give you a call. Any chance you could spare me some time? Really interested in building a career in the, you know, fuzzy background industry. Please, can you? Uh, you've clearly been there a long time. I'd love. You know, can you spare some time <laughs> for someone who's sort of young and enthusiastic, or whatever? I can't remember the words I use. You? You're natural, but uh, definitely not. But you know, you just try and try and build the relationship, get in, yeah. develop a little bit, and yeah. learn a bit. And it's like the old adage, you know, of the a, a consultant. They start with one person like that, and then by the time they're on number three or four they're almost like an expert because they've yeah. had three or four different views. people tend to love talking about the industry they work in and what they do every day, so if you approach them the right way, you can get a lot of information they're never going to give you anything proprietary and you're not asking for it but it's you know you start to put those bits together that it means you can start to have intelligent conversations
2: mm-hmm.
1: all of that said David you know for some of the brokered businesses, you know, the the research you could do could be minimal in some areas. So frankly, just turn up and just be straight with people.
0: Did you have a sense at the time that you were the fifth in the world to start a search? And if so, did you have contact with some of the other searchers around the globe?
1: Well, I went, I was fortunate enough to go to Columbia Business School on exchange when I was doing my MBA. And I did track down a couple of people. And basically, you know, I think only... It was work in progress, I think, rather than finished. Um, but it was going in the right direction. And they were doing what I really wanted to do and aspired to doing, which was you know, to be a, an equity-owning manager. I thought, you know, I've, I've sort of always wanted to do this. Well, oh my, I'd, I'd used the word before business school as, be, as you know, having my own company. So you know, that's what I'd wanted to do. And when I suddenly presented, well, here's a way you can do it. Not only that, you've just spoken to you know two or three people who are actually running businesses as a result of this this process. Is it worth giving it a shot? And yeah, you know what a great thing to do. Do I think I can do it? I have probably exactly the same fears as everybody else. Loads of reservations. Unless you get started, you don't know. And it's better to sort of have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Huh. So it's better to give it a go. Yeah. Um, if it doesn't work out, you know. Even then, I think, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'll have learned a lot from the process. And at the time, I thought I would go back to doing what I was doing before, Mm -hmm. which was basically selling computers for IBM. But in reality, you wouldn't because you learn a lot through the process. And I've seen an awful lot of people now who have gone through the search and haven't necessarily found a business, but have found the process really a great learning process. Obviously, frustrating if you don't find a business but a very good grounding, and a good learning period process for something else. I would say I'm not a good searcher. And I suspect a lot of successful search fund CEOs would say they're not necessarily a good searcher because it's a different skill set to actually running a business. Now, what I love about the whole search fund system is it teaches you to be a more complete businessman because you have to look at different aspects. And as a CEO, you know, you're... One minute, you might be discussing finance, operations the next, HR the next. You know, you, you move. So in the same way, you're, you know, during the search, it's often much more analytical. But then you're, when it comes to meeting vendors and doing a deal, it's much more about the soft skills in the process. So, you know, it's, it's teaching you all of those different things.
0: Yeah, You don't strike me as someone who takes a lot of risk. Now, maybe my radar is off but it seems like a little bit of a contradiction because basically you were going to Mars. Like you were the fifth searcher in the world to do something like this. Were you apprehensive at the time? What made you like decide to take the plunge? Did you just have like professors that filled you with confidence or were you a completely different person then? Or is my radar just off and this is what a risk-taking person looks like?
1: No, I think you're a great radar. I think you're right. I think I'm risk averse. And I do remember reading some research once that said that most entrepreneurs... A risk averse. I'd seen my father in his 50s get made redundant, he laid off, I think, in, in North sure. American speak. And, you know, I would lived through some pretty harsh recessions in the UK. I realized that, you know, you can be really good, but if a company decides to reduce its headcount, it's going to reduce its headcount. Mm. And it was shifting a bit from a job for life, which was still pretty much the sort of mentality, you know, you didn't change jobs very often over in the UK, Um, you could see that that contract was breaking. And I really wanted to be in control of my own destiny. So I would say it's much more risk averse to have your own business and be in control of your destiny than it is to work for someone else.
0: That's an interesting reframe.
1: Yeah. And I I genuinely do not understand why more people (laughs) don't see it that way. So, you know, it's a i Entrepreneur culture. I'm a soldier out of step. I know that. Okay. But, you know, I absolutely see it as a risk-averse thing. And if it works out, you know, and I think the risks are not necessarily enormously positive that it will work out, but it's certainly more positive than it. it's negative now. At the time, what gave me the confidence? I just thought I could run a business. That so I was reasonably good with people, reasonably good with numbers, not great, but good enough and and had enough of the attributes and I wanted to test it I wasn't arrogant enough arrogant enough I don't think because it, it is an arrogant concept but you know I didn't know if I could do it but I really did want to have a go at doing it and I really did feel that if I had a go and it didn't work out well I'll pick myself up I'll still be in my 30s dust myself off and you know have another go or we'll try and get back on the horse so it's interesting. Yeah, I definitely saw it as a risk-averse thing to do rather than a risky thing to
0: do. That's really interesting. I can see that now, but you definitely changed my mind. You changed my perspective. I'm going to look at the whole world differently now. <laughs>
1: I emphasize that it's a very unique, you know, and I am the soldier at the step. It's certainly the way I, I thought then and think now. And I also think that search funds are fantastic. Hmm. They're fantastic for the right person, okay. the person who doesn't mind being out of their depth. A lot of the time, because mm. you, you, know, you are, you're learning.
0: A lot of the time or all the time? I think a lot of the time. Okay.
1: I think once you've been a CEO for a few years, a lot of the difficult times. Once you're a CEO and, and being more established, so let's call it years four or five, you know, you know where the levers are much better. Okay. You start to understand them much more in two, years two and three, obviously. But by the time it gets to, I guess, four, five, six, seven, you know, you very much aware of, of what's involved in running a business and you know you will have inevitably fired some people you, you will inevitably have you know, done a, one of, well, you may have done one or two more with smaller acquisitions so you'll have a much better feel for what you're doing but then you know for me it becomes more interesting again because once you realize the capital what do you do with it well i've started investing in search funds and um, where i started a bit. so once again out of depth What's it like to be an investor? You know, you're on a different side of the table. You understand yeah. certain things from an operating point of view. Mm. I've never invested in anything really. You know, A few public stocks was about it. And it's very different sitting on a board because it's about mentorship and guidance. It's not about telling people what to do. And don't get me wrong, I wasn't a very um, dogmatic CEO. I'd like to see myself as quite consultative. But of course, you, know, you do have to make some decisions. and You do have to make some tough decisions. Whereas when you're... On a board, um, you, you're, it's, it's much more about mentoring the CEO through their learning process and getting to the point where you're giving them the confidence to perhaps take some decisions um, that need to be taken. Yeah. And uh, We're all guilty sometimes of vacillating and taking too long um, okay. and not addressing things we need to. Um, so anyway, it's a long-winded way of saying, you know, for me, that was another step in the, in the learning process. And then uh, I guess more recently, it was teaching. Yeah. i would never taught anybody, any, well, apart from you know the general business type learning, could I really teach a class anything? It's quite a different skill set. And I wanted to test and try that. Um it this way. They, they've, they've asked me back for, so I think this will be only I mean, the fourth year. Um, so it can't be a complete disaster, can it? So for me, I don't see my teaching role as encouraging. I see my teaching role as educating that this is a possible career path. And I say that, David, because it's a very tough path and people need to be aware of the pros and the cons in order to decide whether it's for them. Um, and one of the worst things for me is when people approach me and say, hey, Simon, you know, will you reinvest in my fund? And I say, what have you done? I say, well, done a fantastic job. I've read the stuff on the internet and I've written my PPM. You know, here it is. And I said, well, who have you spoken to? And I saw uh, nobody. Yeah, I've seen some videos on YouTube or whatever. It's so different when you talk to people, and you need to talk to a lot of people, in my view, particularly CEOs. If you can get to people where it hasn't worked out, they haven't bought a business, or even if they have bought a business and it hasn't worked out, you really decide you want to do it, and then come back and see me <laughs> because you've got to be confident. It's a it's a career decision. It's not a job.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting distinction you made. That you're educating rather than encouraging. There's a lot that we could drill into into your own personal experience, but I think it's probably a good time to kind of jump ahead and talk a little bit more about your role as an educator. What are some of the changes that you've seen from being the fifth searcher into the world to however many searchers are in the world right now? It seems to be growing pretty rapidly these days.
1: Now it comes under the umbrella of ETA or Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition. Yeah, at the time, it was probably more MBOs or MBIs, management buy-ins and buy-outs. Okay. And there wasn't, certainly a London Business School, which I can only speak to, that's the school I went through, it wasn't really taught as a subject that you could do straight from business school. It was much more something, well, here's something that happens later on in your career if you're in the right place at the right time and quite fortunate. And obviously, that's progressed over the years in the sort of, well, almost 30 years that I wasn't at business school, you know, it progressed up. But once I sold my business, um, you know, I was still disappointed, I guess, at how few people were doing search funds or ETA this side of the Atlantic because mm. um, it was really taking off in the States. And when you looked at why, it was because it was on the curriculum, so people thought they, they could do it, certainly at the sort of leading business schools. And there were a lot of case studies that were written about search fund companies. So that sort of got people interested in thinking about it. So it might not be in a search fund course or an ETA course, but then if they've covered it on the search fund and this guy from, I don't know, Stanford has bought this business straight from business school, it gets people thinking about it. Um, I started going around the business schools, INSEAD, LBS, and ESA, and just making people aware of it through the business school clubs rather than through the formal instruction. And a few people started to get interested, started to do it. And it started to gather momentum. And ESA a search fund course, on, if you're familiar with Peter Kelly, who yep, was Stanford. Earlier, earlier than me, oh, uh, really? and, uh, he now teaches at Stanford. And uh, he came over and started teaching at uh, ESA with a guy called Timothy Bovard, who taught um, their equivalent of an ETA type course at INSEAD. And now, Ivana has taken that over and is, is more focused on search funds. And obviously, LBS and Judge Business School, where I teach now, decided that they wanted to put it on the curriculum as well um, at Oxford. So it's sort of, it's definitely out there now. We've seen the numbers go up very significantly as a result.
0: Okay. And does that give you pause, seeing the numbers go up so significantly? Do you think there's enough education rather than encouragement? I was just curious, what's your feeling being an OG in the space? What's an OG? (laughs) Original gangster. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I don't have ever been called that before. I think it's anyway,
0: yeah, one uh, more title. Uh, slightly
1: mixed, if I'm if I'm honest about it. I think it's fantastic. First of all, that that people are aware of it and can do it. I still think we're slightly scratching the surface. So a lot of the courses, you know, there's there's one course rather than more than one. So people get a taste, but there's still a depth that you could could go down and. Yeah, it, because it's a bit more mainstream, it may be encouraging people in who don't necessarily have the entrepreneurial zeal, but have but quite like the idea of being called an entrepreneur. Ah. yeah. When I when I did it, the word entrepreneur was, was almost a dirty word in the UK,
0: hmm.
1: unlike North America, where it's, it's sort of a badge of honour.
0: We are rebels, after all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but
1: you know, they yeah, you know, and then one of my peers said to yeah. You know, you've just done an MBA, why are you wasting your your investment in an MBA, going to work basically in business, when yeah. you could be a banker or a consultant, and right. have a very significant salary from day one? Mm. And for me, it was, well, that's what I want to do. I want to build mm. a business. Mm. And that, that needs to be the real driver behind people who want to go down this route, rather than you know, all the financial rewards of potentially yeah, having a, a big capital win, or I want to be called an entrepreneur because you've got these you know, successful entrepreneurs out there and I want to be like them. You know, I'm afraid you're not going to be the next Bezos or whoever. It's, the odds are against that. I mean, some search funds are incredibly successful. But generally, you know, we take a, a business from small, hopefully up to medium, and you're probably not going to be on Inc. Magazine or whatever it is, but hopefully you'll do some good in your environment and you know grow some jobs. If that's what you want to do, it's it's, it's a great route.
0: Yeah, you made me think about something like it's a very particular skill set and a very particular type of person, it seems, because you need the tenacity, the discipline, everything to be able to find a company, acquire a company, successfully lead and grow a company, but you don't want to have the radical upstart of some like you know vc backed unicorn company like airbnb or maybe something like facebook or something you know you you need to steward and protect a modest legacy modest relative to like you say the bezos amazons of the world it's an interesting like niche it seems do you see that as well and and like do you have any thoughts on that
1: yeah you picked up a really good point there you know i, I think you've got to be a bit of a chameleon The search fund CEO, in my view, because when you go in on day one, you're going to somebody else's culture Mm -hmm. and somebody else's business. Now, the whole idea is you're buying a successful company that's doing the right things. So you don't necessarily have to make some big decisions to change things. So, you know, it gives you the chance to learn what hopefully is a reasonably good culture or a very good culture and a very good business. But as you get to learn Both the business and the people, there are changes that you want to make and there are things that you will do. And it's like what I said, you know, when you really know what you're doing, you'll look back and you'll realize that actually you've made some fundamental decisions (laughs) that have changed things quite radically, Hmm. hopefully built on what's been there rather than done something completely new. So, yeah, now that I see as a different skill set to a startup. I think a startup, you know, you really have to do a lot of things yourself in the early days. Depending on your business model in a startup, if it's not cash generative, most startup entrepreneurs spend an awful lot of time raising money, not actually talking to customers Well, I'm sure they do that as well, but they're raising money for the next round and the next round and the next round. And as they do that, obviously, they're growing their business, but often they may be diluted through that process. But anyway, I just think it's a different skill. I've been involved with a couple of startups more as an investor than anything else. I think it's really tough. Really tough journey, but I think it is it is completely different. In the same way, by the way, I've done a couple of turnarounds, and I'm pleased to say they've worked out well. But they were a lot of hard work and a very different skill set. Because on day one, you're having to make operational decisions and financial decisions. Hmm. And if you've got some experience to draw from, that's fine. And if you've got you know the, the difficult people decisions to make on day one, you know often you'll have planned them before, but that's fine. But to do, to do that straight from business school with yeah. no experience as a CEO is an enormous ask.
0: It's kind of like the flight attendant coming up to you and asking if you can fly an airplane. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. Yeah.
1: And why on earth? Whereas perhaps if you're cruising, taking over the controls isn't quite so bad, you know, because that's sort of more what you're doing. Have you heard the analogy about the jockey and the horse and the racetrack?
0: I'm not sure. Could you tell me?
1: Yeah, it's worth reviewing. I'll see if we can dig out the paper. I think it was by Rob Johnson.: Okay, And I think the original may go back to Grouseback, actually. but the if you can imagine, the horse is the company, you've got the horse that's going around the track, and it's, it's running and it's, it's sort of running quite smoothly. What you're doing effectively is replacing the jockey halfway through the race. Um, you know that's what you want to be, be doing. and you could see sort of the track as almost like being the industry as well. And you, you can keep building it if you want to with the you know industry changes being the weather or whatever or some of yeah. the jumps. So, but yeah, I think I, I quite like, or I do like that analogy. I think it's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, it's not easy to take the reins from someone else, especially as you, you know, the horse is still going around the track. But if you've got a well-trained horse and it's with the pack running smoothly, that's probably a better place to be than one that's sort of lame and is limping at the End of the field and needs a, a good fix or rest before it can really get going again, which is perhaps a turnaround analogy.
0: I would think so. Do you think it's a bit of a misnomer in that case? Because the entrepreneurship title gets everyone's attention, but it seems like it's a class of its own.
1: Yeah. I, I, funny enough, when I, well, up until relatively recently, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, yeah, it was never called entrepreneurship acquisition. Uh-huh. And when I first heard it called that, I thought, really? <laughs> you know, and I and had exactly the same. And for me, yeah, When I went to business school, not now, but when I went to business school, yeah, I thought entrepreneurship was starting a business. I now realize it has a much broader base than that. And I do think entrepreneurship through acquisition is the right title. Okay. And yeah, I, I think, therefore, that the definition is wider. And I'd almost describe myself and other search fund entrepreneurs as being entrepreneurs who don't necessarily have that big idea or entrepreneurs who don't necessarily have the big idea or the desire to start something from scratch. But you know, this is the route for those people who perhaps are not quite as creative or don't want to go back to a company with one employee. I've invested globally, which perhaps sounds grander than it is. It's just that yeah, I've been investing in search funds long enough that there haven't been enough in the UK. You to, to be invested just in one country. Plus, I like the idea of the financial diversification with the geographic spread. But I would never invest in a search fund or an entrepreneur that didn't have local investors on board. So that's perhaps the cultural thing that you're talking about. Now, if it's a Japanese searcher, they'll understand and they'll see the background. And they'll also have some investors, local investors, who will see the background, which will be really important. But I think one of the benefits and upsides of the model is we'll often have an international search fund investor on a board. And particularly ones from the US where the model has been going a lot longer, where people have more experience to draw from. And I've seen that be really valuable on a couple of boards where we've got that. And it's just great because you're tapped into the network, but also it's just just the thinking. It's different, partly search fund-wise and probably partly business-wise. I mean, when I was running a business, I always used to enjoy going to the States because people just think differently and, dare I say it, much more commercially and bigger. So it's just very beneficial for getting me or, you know, out of the box and thinking differently.
0: Now, how long have you been a lecturer?
1: I think it's about four years formally and informally, probably a good six or seven years before that, if not longer. And when I say informally, that's the going around in the business schools and going through the clubs, just telling people about it, really.
0: Okay. Marketing?
1: Well, I'm not being pedantic, but it's a bit like I use the word instructor. And also marketing. I'm not definitely not trying to sell it. I'm just trying to make people aware of it because I've had a great career True. doing it. And
0: good to point that out. People
1: can't have that career if they don't know about it. And once they hear about it, they can choose. That's great.
0: That's really interesting. You're you're going around to make people excited and then sobering them up real quick at the same time.
1: Well, I think you know. I'm sure other educators may have a different view. I'm not saying they're wrong. I respect that view. But for me, it's, you know, someone's career and someone's life is extremely important. And, you know, yeah. I'd hate to, for them to feel that I'd sold them into something that was actually going to be You know, undoubtedly, yeah. and one of a guy who I sit on his board now, and he, he said to me while he was trying to close his deal, which was a very difficult deal to close, when I was working with him quite closely at the time, and he said, yeah, I never realized it was so difficult to close a deal. It is really tough. And yeah, I just think, well, didn't I tell you? (laughs) (laughs) But often people don't necessarily want to hear. And you don't. Well,
0: it's one thing to hear it. It's another to
1: live it. You're absolutely right. You know, you can tell people really easily how to drive a car really easily. In fact, people see next to people driving cars all the time, don't they, growing up? And then put them in the driving seat. And oh, my word, it's so different.
0: I was speaking to a mentor recently who was expressing some, you know, a similar kind of sentiment like, She's very smart and would say things and goes over people's heads or is ignored and stuff something. And maybe months later, someone says the exact same thing that she said already, or she'll say it again. And then finally they hear it. And she's like, why don't they hear me the first time? And I told her, cause I've seen this myself, like being on the receiving end, both sides of that. And you just, the soil's not ready. Like you've planted the seeds, it's just, it's not ready. Like you have to live, and there's so many variables that we're not aware of because our mind is so good at convincing us that we're seeing everything, like every, but where, you know, there's you have to live a certain amount and make some mistakes to where you're ready to listen to well, Simon. I think, I
1: think repetition as well. And it's why I, you know, I said to people, go and talk to 20, 30 people who have been through or know about the search fund environment. Because once you do that, you'll have heard it a lot of times. And I think that will make you more receptive. You know, if one person tells you something, as well, i'd ignore that when you've heard it half a dozen times you actually think yeah yeah maybe and then you can internalize that because you're right i I think you used the words tenacity and discipline yeah you really need to be pretty determined and pretty bloody minded and really want to do it fine are you do you
0: what are some of your like good feelings about the space you've been in it for a few decades like what's some of the high watermarks for you
1: Oh, I love the way it's taking off. I mean, I've said some caution about it, but it's fantastic. It's so great that we've got more entrepreneurial people with great educations, great business backgrounds going into building business. You know, what what better thing to do for an economy? And I think that's a really good thing. I think it's it's good that those people, and I'm not criticizing banks or consultants, but, you know, getting your hands dirty and, and actually seeing something happen is very rewarding. And be able to benefit from that if you're an equity owning manager is financially rewarding as well. So I think that's that's great. I think we're seeing in a way you know a generational change in terms of there's a lot of businesses that were set up and this is this is answering that succession problem. And so many small businesses don't have a good answer to that succession. Whereas yeah, rephrase that yeah you can sell out to a corporate maybe and what's that corporate going to do typically? Probably absorb your small business into their big business. For most entrepreneurs that have spent a lifetime building a business, that's not very rewarding. So, And then you try and sell a business without an entrepreneur, and then private equity will happily buy your business, but then tell you, you we know, are going to downgrade the price because you haven't got anyone running it because you want to step away. And then you try and recruit someone to run the business when you're not there if you're an entrepreneur. It often doesn't work out terribly well. Partly, perhaps, because as an entrepreneur, you can't give up the reins, then you haven't given up the equity. And partly because you know small businesses really motivated people with educated backgrounds aren't necessarily attracted to them. Lots of people go to a risk of a promise of equity that doesn't materialize. Whereas the search for model sort of sorts out a lot of those things. You know, it gives you enough money to pay your bills while you go and search for a company that you really want to buy, that has some great defensive characteristics. And that's fantastic, and then you get the business. And well, can you actually make something of this, please? You know, can you add some value? Because all you've been doing so far is spending money. And <laughs> that's when you find out whether you you really can make a difference.
0: It really is a series of S curves, like each transformation, metamorphosis throughout as you're in the search phase, raising your search capital, getting your search capital, finding a company, closing the deal, you know, taking the reins, running it, growing it, maybe doing roll-ups or tuck-ins here or there, and then of course the whole the selling phase is often not talked about but i'm sure that's a whole nother subject unto itself
1: yeah and i think like your your analogy of the s curve but often you'll have a googly thrown in it's a cricketing term but you know some sort of surprise will come and it's what i I love about business in a way you know it it keeps the adrenaline flowing and you're constantly trying to think ahead and how is this going to develop and what are you know the, the developments and it's what makes it exciting and fun. If it was easy, you know, it just wouldn't be so much fun. So I used to think, David, all businesses sort of ended up, well, successful businesses, you know, had this nice smooth curve going one way. Mine yeah. didn't go like that. You know, I had plenty of bumps along the road. So it's a bit like a roller coaster. Actually, you get behind a lot of businesses. They're a bit of a roller coaster too. And I've seen some research that suggests that a lot of search fund businesses can have some difficult early days. And that's why you know the words you used earlier, tenacity and discipline, and determination, ah. are just so important. Because you've, in some of those down times, you got to pick yourself up. You got to keep going. And you might be panicking a bit, but you really shouldn't let your customers and staff see that. You know, you've got to think you're a leader now. So that that's right. To do. And if you you know if you're not sure, that's what your board is about. You, know, you talk it through with them. They're never going to do it for you, and don't expect that but they'll perhaps give you some ideas, suggestions, thoughts to give you the confidence to go and do it yourself.
0: Well, Simon Webster, you have given us a lot to think about. That was a really interesting look back at the growth of search funds around the world. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure that you highlight? I think,
1: I mean, there's an awful lot that could be covered, of course, but I think the choosing the right business and in the right industry is phenomenally important for how enjoyable the journey is for both the entrepreneur and the investors and i don't just mean financially rewarding you know, i just mean enjoyable because if you get it right and a lot of those characteristics are known the typical characteristics you spend your time building a business as a, as a ceo rather than you know fighting wars really i.e you want a business with high recurring income yeah. so that you can be confident you're going to pay the salaries And, you know, that doesn't worry you on a a Monday morning.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us. It's really interesting talking to you. If people want to contact you, do you want to direct them anywhere?
1: Yeah, probably via LinkedIn. I'm quite, won't always get back quickly, particularly when I'm teaching. But I do try and and return calls.
0: Okay. Well, thanks again. Have a good day. Thanks for having David. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, Eyes on the Horizon.